Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, it's COVID, COVID, and more COVID. The assessment and testing centers for battling COVID-19 have opened in Hamilton. We get more details from Dr. Wes Stephen. Ontario is now in a state of emergency, as per Doug Ford's announcement earlier this morning. We'll talk about what that entails. And today is St. Patrick's Day, don't you know? But there's not going to be any green beer flowing in a lot of the restaurants around the province because of the pandemic. How's that impacting local business? Well, we'll talk about that. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. They just received the uh, go-ahead uh, for assessment and testing centers, one in each end of the city, one in the east end, one on the west end. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Dr. Wes Stephen, who is uh, EVP Clinical Operations and COO for Hamilton Health Sciences, and uh, I'm sure a very busy man these days, too. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us today. Thank you, Bill. As we continue this war, and I think that's what a lot of the politicians are characterizing this, this war against what's going to be happening here with COVID-19, talk to us about these assessment centers, doctor, and the role that they're going to play here. Yes, so as you're aware, uh, we are really um, in the phase of trying to contain this virus and and preventing uh, the spread within our community. An important component of that, of course, is testing and to understand who may or may not have the virus. Um, yesterday, as you've indicated, we've opened uh, two uh, assessment centers, uh, one in the east and one in the west, um, and that's in with collaboration uh, with public health. So essentially, Hamilton Health Sciences is hosting this assessment clinic in, uh, in the west side of the city. Um, just to be clear, um, lots of people are asking questions around this, and, and it is really about symptomatic patients who uh, who uh, have been traveling um, or have other risk factors that would warrant some testing. These assessment centers are beyond just testing. They do assess the, whether you should have a test or not. And uh, we are um, have a joint approach in the community where you're being referred to one of our assessment centers, um, and that's done through either uh, public health or your family doctor, and you're booked to an appointment for the assessment either in the east or the west side of the city. Uh, which is an important element to this, I would think, doctor. I mean, I, I understand people are going to be very concerned, and, and rightly so, uh, but th- this is not a walk-in situation. You have to have an appointment to actually be seen here. Ideally, yes. Um, There are some uh, tools that are online um, that people can access to see if they're a candidate uh, to be assessed for testing. Um, As we're all aware, social distancing is very important, and and we just don't want a whole mass of people to be standing in a queue uh, waiting for a test that they may not actually may not be appropriate for. So it really is about crowd control and appropriateness of testing. Um, As you can imagine, um, there's there's a finite resource uh, that we are using uh, to make a difference or bend the curve of this virus in our community. Uh, So lots of people may want to be tested, but that may not be appropriate. There is sort of a strict criteria, and you you can access that online. There's several uh, websites that Ontario uh, and uh, public health that can help you uh, direct whether you should be making a call to public health or your family doctor. So there are a couple of different options here, and, and as with many other aspects, I guess, of our healthcare system, doctor, uh, the family doctor is, is the portal to get into an awful lot of these other things. But failing that, because not everybody has a doc, obviously, uh, sadly, uh, there are some online procedures that they can follow and, and, and help with the assessment, the self-assessment, I guess, of really where they are. Correct. There's public health, there's telehealth, and there's the family doctor. Um, and there's numerous uh, um, other uh, a- aspects on- online. Um, you know, I think it's really important just for people to know, and, and I know the public is fully aware, that every 12 hours this is a very fluid, very moving file for all of us. And so uh, these assessment centers potentially could look different in the near future. Who knows? And so as a result, we need a central intake for truth. Uh, so, so I would direct people to family practice, uh, public health, telehealth, or online. When that happens, and, and the self-assessment, which has got to be the first phase of this, because uh, everybody who gets a sniffle now is going to think, oh my God, you know, it's, it's COVID-19. And it may not necessarily be uh, COVID-19, but uh, there's, is there almost, a, a, from what I understand, doctor, a checklist that we can go through to say, uh, symptom-wise, well, probably not, maybe so. And, and there's a time frame, I, I think, is there not, before we actually decide maybe we have to go to next steps here? 
Yeah, for sure. So you will hear commonly, um, you know, the incubation period of being exposed to the virus to developing it. Um, typically, uh, we're talking about a 14-day uh, period. Uh, we're talking about symptoms that can be quite similar to other diseases such as influenza or other colds, uh, such as cough or fever. Um, but all that information uh, is, I feel very comfortable to say, uh, when you go to these self-assessment tools, it lays it out each step. And if you're if you are uh, fit those criteria, then make the call, and we'd be pleased to do the testing. Let me ask you and get your read, Doctor, on a couple of the things that are going on. And, and obviously, the the politicians are heavily involved in this, as they should be, uh, deciding on policy and showing leadership about what we as the public can be doing about this. And they're doing this, of course, with the advisement of, of, of people like yourself and others uh, who are trying to coordinate the medical aspect of this. Uh, and there are a couple of things here that I'm, I'm seeing some conflicting stories about and conflicting points of view. Uh, about this. Uh, first of all, is is the idea of shutting down public places like this, now, which is a huge inconvenience, and there are economic ramifications, as we all know. But could you talk to us a little bit, Doctor, about uh, the efficacy of actually doing that and trying to, as you say, control this virus? Yeah, so, so um, you know, this is really in the realm of public health, and um, it, it really is the direction, both federally and provincially, of the experts who uh, look at this, um, and and really, I think what we would all acknowledge and recognize that there are countries in the world that didn't take it as seriously as perhaps uh, they should have, and uh, and have become very overwhelmed uh, their healthcare system because of the burden of disease or virus in their community, and so um, there. You know, I, I will just say that people will always be, in retrospect, go back and say you, you didn't do enough soon enough or you did too much too early. But, but I do believe and do support public health's position on social distancing and really trying to prevent the spread. Uh, because you'll hear commonly about flattening the curve. And mm -hmm. the curve is the number of patients who get it all at once. And if you get this huge uh, number of patients that end up in ICUs or admissions to hospital, it very well may overwhelm the healthcare system. And so it is about trying to slow the virus spread and, 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 and make it smoother so that the healthcare system and the community can actually get through this infection. So um, totally supportive of, of this approach. Um, I do uh, do look towards um, you know public health who lead this sort of uh, direction and uh, they're advising our government um, and I and I think that hopefully Canadians are taking this seriously. If you look at some of the European countries, it's been very devastating um, with significant people losing their lives and with the impact to their community. Well, and it's really a matter of breaking the chain, is it not? I mean, people that are infected or even are carriers like this, we need to separate them, let them get well, and, and basically uh, isolate ourselves away from them so that you break the chain so that they're not passing that on to somebody else. Exactly. And I, and I just want people to realize that the vast majority of patients who get this, they, they get over it. Yeah. Um, it is really um, the vast majority of people, it's not, not that dissimilar to getting a bad common cold or influenza. But it is about the high-risk population that we spread it to, uh, the elderly, people with a lot of medical conditions. They're at real risk, and if we spread it to them, that, that has huge impact. Or people that are on chemotherapy or immunosuppressed, like that, that's the risk. That's our social responsibility to protect our neighbors and, and, our, and our colleagues who may very well be at risk of significant complications from this virus. Well, and, and we need to, I think, be cognizant of that. I mean, because initially when, when that came out, a lot of people I, that we were talking to in this program said, well, yeah, the frail and the elderly. But I said, it's also diabetics, uh, and you don't know who they might be. Uh, you can't look at a person and say, well, they must be diabetic. Uh, people that have autoimmune diseases. I mean, there are so many people that are walking around among us right now that are high risk as a result of this. Absolutely. So that, that, that's why, obviously, you know, it, it may seem to some people like we're using a hammer to kill a flea here, but it's, it's really the best, the best way to try to break this chain and to try to separate this and slow down the, the progress of this thing. Correct. So i got to ask you about the, the problem and, and the, the impact this is having on hospitals themselves, Doctor, because uh, I know that you from day one and, and your staff and, and, of course, Dr. Richardson and the other people in public health have been telling people, look, when you see symptoms, if you start to feel lousy, 
don't go to the ER. That's that's not the first place you should be going. Uh, yet you know as well as I do that there are still some people that will do that automatically. I, are you feeling that extra pressure now because of what's happening with COVID-19 uh, at that level, at the ER level? Yes. So great question. Um, uh, you know, it's interesting. Um, it is March break. Uh, and so, uh, I, you know, so we are seeing, you know, stable emergency room visits. Um, every day there is some fluctuation on that. Um, I do, do want to answer slightly different in that um, the hospital, uh, you know, I'd like to acknowledge our staff and our physicians who have been doing a tremendous amount of work in preparation for this. And uh, over the last few days, uh, just so the public is aware, we have started to postpone non-urgent or non-urgent activity. So scheduled, some of the scheduled surgery, uh, our clinics, we are in the process of ramping that all down. And we're doing that for a couple reasons. One is to try to minimize the spread of the virus within the hospital setting. And secondly, uh, to build capacity uh, as we anticipate we are, go- we are um, going to see uh, significant admissions because of COVID if, if we follow the same pattern as other countries. So um, lots of work is undergoing. Uh, our ambulatory programs, our clinics, people will start hearing about rescheduling of their appointments if it's non-urgent or uh, 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 non-essential visits, uh, etc. There's a, a sense of inevitability with what you've just said about the pressure this is going to put on hospitals because uh, the experts that we're hearing on both sides of the border, doctor, are telling us that, look, at, even if we do everything we're supposed to do with social distancing uh, and, and all the other things we're supposed to do, washing our hands, et cetera, there is probably going to be a spike in these numbers in the not-too-distant future. I believe that's what most of us would say is, is true, and it is really about the preparation for that. Um, and, uh, you know, we're hoping that containment will work. We are hopeful that social distancing will make a big difference. Um, um, and we are also preparing um, for significant, and hopefully we don't see it, uh, significant uh, impact in the acute care hospitals. Uh, I, I know that people always tend to shy away when you start using comparatives of what's going on in China, but since it seemed to originate from there initially, uh, we have seen, at least officials are telling us from China, that we've seen a significant decrease in the number of new cases in the last little while. But that is because they have mandated social distancing there. It's that maybe not the only cause, but it certainly is a contributing factor in seeing those declining numbers. And I think that's why you see um, the government's um, you know, creating state of emergencies and uh, where hospitals are uh, deferring all care that's possible that to be deferred. Um, that's why the schools are closing. Um, you know, I think it is that we be- we believe as a society we can make an impact on um, on the burden of this virus in our community. Doctor, did the SARS experience from a few years ago give us a kind of a leg up on this? I mean, it wasn't provincial-wide, such as what we well, this is national, international, really. But, but it was, I think, instructive as to how we can contain and try to contain something like this. Yes, for sure. That's about 17 years ago, yeah. actually. And, and I think what we learned from SARS, there's many, many aspects. But one is, um, you know, how to, uh, how to have surge planning um, and how to manage ICU patients how to protect our healthcare workers with personal uh, equipment, um, how to screen um, as patients and staff come into hospitals. Um, you will be seeing that this week, no doubt, in our facilities where uh, people will be asked and be screened and maybe turned aside that it's not appropriate to come into the hospital. Uh, so we did learn from a system point of view, um, and, I, and I do think it, it's positioned us in a better state than where we were uh, 20 years ago. Uh, just on a final note, uh, I want to let you go because I know it's a very busy day for you. Uh, we, I, on behalf of, I think, an awful lot of people, acknowledge uh, yourself and, and the staffs at all the hospitals here, and I'm talking frontline workers especially, uh, who are under a great deal of pressure and will continue to be. And I think they, they can read the tea leaves here too, Doctor, and understand that, look, it, it's going to get a lot worse and a lot more hectic before things ease up a little bit. But uh, they seem to be up to it and they are dedicated to it. And uh, this doesn't happen without that dedication. Thanks very much. I, I would echo that comment. I think um, the whole healthcare system, both our partners with St. Joseph's and ourselves and public health, um, 
you know, are really rolling up their sleeves and, uh, and are getting ready to whatever comes through our doors to give the best care possibly that we can. Well, especially because we also know that, of course, Hamilton Health Sciences are actually now employing as street teams. I mean, not, it's not just waiting for that, this, this influx to come to them, but they're going out there looking after homeless people and others uh, that are disadvantaged as well to try to do everything to be proactive on this. Uh, it's, it's, it's a daunting time, Doctor, but it's good to know that, uh, that we're ready and we've got great people working for us and with us. Thanks very much, Bill. Okay, Doctor, we'll stay in touch. Thanks again for this today. Dr. West Stephen, of course, uh, who is the Chief Operating Officer with Hamilton Health Sciences. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. With what's going on nationally and internationally with the the COVID-19 virus and the reaction to it here in Canada, yesterday afternoon the Prime Minister addressed uh, the nation from uh, outside his house where uh, he's uh, still in, uh, uh, well, self uh, isolation mode because of his wife who had contracted the virus. But he, he talked about travel restrictions, and of course we covered those at great length, and we'll talk about that I know a little bit later on this morning. Uh, WestJet, by the way, has also jumped in and said that they're uh, going to be ceasing, uh, as of the uh, end of this week, I believe it is, uh, international flights uh, for a period of time anyway, until we can get this thing under control. And here in Ontario, uh, yeah, we know the Premier made a, a rather large announcement yesterday and, and a very informative announcement with a number of his ministers about some of the compensation packages. But uh, just about an hour ago, uh, the Premier once again addressed the province uh, with a very important announcement. We want to play it for you just to give you some context. If you missed it uh, at, at 8.30 this morning, uh, this is what the Premier had to say about where he is going and where his government is going moving forward with how they're going to be dealing with COVID-19. This morning, I've declared a state of emergency in the province of Ontario. We're facing an unprecedented time in our history. This is a decision that was not made lightly. COVID-19 constitutes a danger of major proportions. We're taking this measure because we must offer our full support and every power possible to help our healthcare sector fight the spread of COVID-19. The first order under this declaration will be the prohibition of organized public events of over 50 people, including parades and events and services within places of worship until March the 31st. Secondly, the following establishments are closed effective immediately until March the 31st. All facilities providing indoor recreational programs, all public libraries, all private schools as defined in the Education Act, all licensed childcare centers, all bars and restaurants, except to the extent that such facilities provide takeout food and delivery. All theaters, including those offering live performances of music, dance, and other art forms, as well as cinemas that show movies and concert venues. Again, this order will come into effect immediately. I wanna be very clear about what this means and what this doesn't mean. This is not a provincial shutdown. I repeat, this is not a provincial shutdown. The vast majority of businesses, including those most vital to day-to-day life, will not be affected by this order. Essential services and essential needs will be able available to every individual and family. Groceries, convenience stores, pharmacies, manufacturing facilities, public transit, important public services, construction sites, office buildings will all continue to operate. Right now, we need to do everything possible to slow the spread of COVID-19 in order to avoid overwhelming our healthcare system. The health and well-being of every Ontarian must be our number one priority. We must think about our children, our parents, and our grandparents. We must think about our neighbors, our colleagues, and our friends. We must think 
about the elderly, those with health issues, and every other person across this province. All of these people have been in my heart and on my mind with every decision I've made during this crisis. It is imperative we protect every person and every family across this province. We must act decisively and we must not delay. As COVID-19 continues to spread, the government must be in a position to take any and all actions necessary. That is why today, Ontario has declared a state of emergency. As I've said all along, we've been preparing for every scenario. This decision was not made lightly. It was based on the advice of our Chief Medical Officer of Health and Public Health officials. Our cabinet deliberated late into the night and again very early this morning. As we take action to fight the spread of this virus, I want to assure the people of Ontario their government is taking every step possible to flatten the curve. We're taking the steps necessary to protect you and your loved ones. We're taking these measures now while our system is strong and to ensure it remains strong in the days and months ahead. I want to urge calm across the province. No expense will be spared to support Ontarians in need. There's no level of support we won't consider. By declaring a state of emergency, our province will be in the position to act as fast and decisively as needed. Again, this decision was not made lightly. We've seen around the world that jurisdictions like Ontario who take timely and decisive action have so far stayed ahead of this virus. We must flatten the curve and help stop the spread of COVID-19. We understand this decision will impact workers across this province. My message to these people is that we will support you during these difficult times. We expect the federal government to support Ontarians with the following measures. They must work with us to establish a loan program to support businesses. Immediate EI reforms must be implemented to support workers. The eligibility criteria must be expanded to include workers impacted by this outbreak. In Ontario, I've directed our cabinet to look at all options necessary to support the workers and businesses during this unprecedented time. That is why today I'm announcing the first stage of our COVID-19 emergency relief package. This is over $300 million committed to supporting the fight against COVID-19. This is the first stage of our larger emergency relief package. Our ministries have been working around the clock to develop a plan that can be implemented as fast as possible. This initial investment of $300 million for immediate measures to protect the health of Ontarians. This funding will also help us protect our seniors and the most vulnerable during this difficult time. We're going to bring 75 more critical beds online, 500 post-acute care beds, and help hospitals set up 25 more COVID-19 assessment centers. We're backing up our frontline public health workers with more resources for monitoring and testing. And we're purchasing more personal protective equipment like masks, gloves, surgical gowns for our nurses, doctors, and personal support workers, as well as more ventilators. For our long-term care homes, this funding will provide 24-7 health screening support for staff and visitors to help protect our seniors, as well as additional staffing for infection control and cleaning supplies at these homes. We're supporting our health professionals 
We are providing funding to backfill 1,000 nurses, 1,000 personal support workers to support capacity during the outbreak. We're also providing funds for 50 physicians to cover emergency departments, urgent care and primary care in Indigenous, Northern, rural and remote communities. We listen to the frontline workers and this surge funding will back them up in the fight against COVID-19. In addition to the public health measures we've introduced today to keep everyone safe and healthy and our legislation to provide job security to workers and families and certainty to businesses. As I've said, we will spare no expense to support Ontarians. This is the first stage of a larger emergency relief package. In the coming days, Ontario will face challenging times. We must come together as a province. Every Ontarian must support each other. I and the entire government of Ontario will do whatever it takes to guide our province through this difficult time. For years, Ontarians have led the world in healthcare, research, business, and ingenuity. We have the greatest minds, the greatest businesses, and the greatest people in the entire world. Ontario will weather through this storm together. Ontario will come out of this stronger than ever before. Thank you and God bless you. Ontario Premier Doug Ford with an announcement that he made just about one hour ago at Queen's Park, uh, further enhancing, of course, uh, the aid package that he had talked about initially yesterday and also declaring a state of emergency here in the province of Ontario, which is going to have long-reaching effects, of course. Joining us to talk about uh, this is uh, Genevieve Tellier, professor in the School of Political Studies at the University of Ottawa. Uh, Genevieve, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us today. My pleasure. At times like this, and we're in a crisis mode, as we all know, uh, we look to our political leaders, uh, not just for information uh, about what they're going to do and how they're going to do it, but but I think one of the, the, the other things that we expect, I'd like to expect anyway from our leaders, is, is, is some sense of comfort to, to, to tell us, no, we got this under control, we're working on this, uh, is very important as opposed to we're not quite sure what we're doing and we're flying by the seat of our pants. We've seen both extremes in, in past crises with government. How, how would you rate how the Premier and, and others uh, in this country are handling this crisis? I think you you put you point, uh, you, you identified maybe what I think a bit troubling in a sense that yes I have the information we are in a state of emergency but with where is this reassurance where is this comfort as you say uh, for Ontarians saying uh, we understand what we, you go through uh, I, I see many people are struggling because they have to stay at their house uh, the issue of income money is very important also children how do you manage to work and attend to your children at the same time uh, so you need to be uh, comforted or to be reassured and I think that message is somewhat lacking and so it, it may be in the format of the press conference that we have so we see Doug Ford he's very formal um, uh, surrounded by others but uh, I cannot avoid doing a comparison with what the premiers of, of Quebec is doing he's at the table he takes the time to speak with people for a long period of time, maybe half an hour to answer all questions. You have the chief medical officer also that talks a bit more. Yesterday he talks to a teenager specifically. We didn't hear that in Ontario. And so, uh, yes, this lever of uh, providing comfort is kind of make, missing now um, in the communication in Ontario and I will say also at the federal level. So I'm kind of struck to see the difference, uh, especially between Quebec and Ontario uh, on that front. Well, it's interesting. I got an email this morning from one of our listeners uh, who, who has young children who are obviously not in school now because the schools closed last week. Uh, and, and further, though, of course, daycares have been shut down now, too, with the announcement that the Premier made today. And, and the essence of her email was, what am I supposed to do? Uh, I hear these announcements about all these millions of dollars in aid packages. How do I access this? And what, how is this going to help me now, right now? Because my kids are here and I have to go back to work. I may have, uh, there's a lot of questions and not a whole lot of detail here. Exactly. And so the financial package that was kind of announced this morning, it's not really new money. So the $300 million that the government said is available, that was announced last week. And so, but my sense is that 
the, the premier is waiting maybe for an announcement from the federal government. So then the question is about coordination between both levels of government, which is pro- a, a, another aspect of it. But yes, you need to be reassured about help. I think that's going to be the main difficulty for Ontario and for the government is to deliver that help because it's one thing to say the money is available. And then how do you make sure that you provide this money? Just recall a few weeks ago about the strike in education. The government said, yes, there is money for families, um, for children that stay at home. And that was kind of a challenge. And it was not a complex program to put in place. Now it's much more complex. Who do you identify that can benefit from the money? How will this money be uh, given? When? What's the timeline? Um, Many complex issues. And so you should reassure people right away. Again, if I compare with Quebec, the announcement was made yesterday. So already yesterday, Quebecers know that they could expect up to $600 per week for the four next weeks. Uh, for those who cannot work. Uh, so there are much more information provided in Quebec and in Ontario. And I think Ontario should maybe pay a, a, spend more time on this communication and, and acting quickly. We know that government is a big organization. It's, it works slowly, but you don't have the luxury of time for the moment and you have to act quickly. There's a propensity for any elected official, though, to want to be out front of these things, isn't there? I mean, they want to be the one at the microphone. Uh, and this is a, a medical crisis, a pandemic such as this. Uh, the, the, the people that we want to hear from here are the medical experts, the medical officer of health and, uh, and others that, that have some expertise in this. Uh, because it's, it's so easy, Genevieve, at any point for the elected official who doesn't really have this expertise uh, to misinform, uh, you know, not necessarily on purpose, but I mean, that, and that can be tragic. I mean, we saw that with Trump last week, of course, uh, who, when he went off script a number of times, and, and of course his staff had to come back on here. I mean, confusion is the last thing we want at this point. Yes, and I agree with you. And so we don't see Dr. William a lot. Uh, we see him every day or when there is a conference press. But he, I think he should speak more uh, and explain more. Uh, Ontario, we should become expert on coronavirus. So uh, don't uh, don't uh, spend any spend all effort necessary to provide information. It could be even more technical, but people want to know what's happening. And this social distancing. What is it exactly? Why do we push for that? What does it mean? What's the target? And many, many issues, questions that we may have. Um, yes, the answer are out there, but for the moment, it's for us to find it. And so government can be uh, pro, uh, more proactive. Now, that being said, uh, yes, elected officials, they are politicians, but I would uh, put a good mark for Doug Ford and all politicians on the sense that I don't see a lot of partisanship playing up. In, in Ontario. In fact, the fact that uh, last week Premier Ford um, asked all leaders of all political parties to join for a, a, a meeting together, I, I think that we have put partisanship aside, which is maybe not the case at the federal level. And that's a good point. So uh, uh, for that, a high mark. But as you said, uh, elected officials, they are not experts. But on the other hand, they should be the one transmitting the information from the expert to the citizen. And that would be the job of Doug Ford and his uh, ministers. It's a very acute observation, because uh, I was surprised by that, too, as I was watching the, the, the last week's meeting, because uh, previous to that, of course, as you mentioned, he had a meeting with Andrew Horvath uh, and, and talked about this and tried to bring everybody into the tent, and the interim liberal leader was there as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're right, the federal level, if you look at some of the tweets going back and forth, especially from some of the conservative leadership candidates right now, uh, there doesn't seem to be a sense of unity here. They're looking at this as an opportunity for partisanship and taking cheap shots. And that's that's counterproductive to, to the to the national good, I would think. Yes, and it's not because it's a minority government, because if you look at New Brunswick, uh, also the premier has struck a uh, multi-partisan committee that monitors the situation every day. So everybody from different parties are at the same table. And so it's not a question of minority, majority government. It's really a question of attitude. But then I think it's more the, the to, we have more to blame Justin Trudeau for allowing that to happen. So he should be the one in in charge and reaching to other parties. Uh, I thought it, there was a beginning last week when the parliament was uh, in recess, uh, but I don't see that anymore. So that could be dangerous in a time of crisis. You want everybody to be together. Um, I think Dalt Ford is very concerned and aware of that, and he's doing a very good job on that. Uh, but at the same time, maybe he should li- be more aware 
uh, that he is this kind of uh, transmission uh, belt between expert and layperson. Um, and so he should be a bit more proactive on that. Now, that being said, you know, uh, as I do, uh, I don't think that Ford really likes and enjoys press conferences. <laughs> he doesn't have a lot of experience on that. No, that's true. And so he is probably learning the process currently. So uh, maybe we will see some changes on that also. He's going to have a lot, a lot of practice over the next few weeks, to be sure. Genevieve, as always, thank you so much for this today. Really appreciate the time. Thank you. My pleasure. That's a Genevieve Tellier, of course, from the University of Ottawa. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Everybody's Irish on this day, of course, as, as the, the sayings always go, and a little bit of festivities and a little tip-off for every now and then. But uh, th- that enthusiasm has been dulled uh, considerably, obviously, by what's been going on on an international basis, of course, as we deal with COVID-19 and the implications and and the ramifications of that. And, of course, some of these are policy decisions that have been made. Uh, the latest one, of course, coming from Doug Ford, uh, the Premier of Ontario, just a couple of hours ago when he announced that uh, uh, they were essentially uh, shutting down uh, restaurants, bars and restaurants are now included, as well as many public buildings. Uh, unless they can serve takeout or delivery items. Uh, notice the Tim Horton stores are even actually doing this, too, in an announcement they made the other day that uh, you're not allowed to eat inside or drink inside Tim Hortons. You can get takeout, uh, you know, through, through through the window or takeout, but uh, no restaurant per se, no sit-down part of the restaurant, and that's clearly what's happening with here. Well, what's this going to do to the industry? You know, we've prided ourselves in, in the growth in the, of, of some incredible uh, eateries here in the Hamilton area in the last little while that are gaining national recognition and uh, you have to wonder about the long-term viability uh, is if these doors are going to be shut for any length of time. And it may well be that that's going to be the case. Joining us to talk about this is Michael J. Chipola, who is uh, the guy that runs Hamburger and Fish, one of the great local restaurants here in our Hamilton area. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Thanks, Bill. I'm, uh, I'm happy to, to, to come on the air with you guys in these uh, tough times. Yeah, these are tough times. I mean, you <laughs> You talk about getting kicked while you're down, and we all understand why the government's announcing this, etc. But uh, as as we just talked about with one of our previous guests, I mean, you know, all pandemics and the result of this is local. I mean, because it's how it impacts locally, and and this guy, the the, the effects of what's going on right here are, are going to be devastating to guys like you that have that put your blood, sweat, and tears, and and sometimes a lot of money into these enterprises. Absolutely, 100%. I mean, we have four restaurants here in southern Ontario, two in Hamilton, as as, uh, as most people know, and two more out in the St. Catharines area. And we had actually made the decision to shut down um, end of the dinner service yesterday uh, just in, in trying to deal with the concerns that were coming from our staff, uh, the concerns we had for not only our staff, but for, you know, obviously the public, the community, and just trying to do the right thing. But the impacts are going to be, you know, they're going to be mind-blowing uh, if the federal government doesn't step up like we've seen happen in other countries. Well, I know they've talked about it, but uh, talk is cheap. And uh, what you guys need to find out is exactly how this is going to impact on you. You know, it's it's easy for governments, as we know, Michael, to make announcements at 50,000 feet. But how's this going to impact you guys at ground level? Well, I mean, the reality is is that, as anybody who runs restaurants know, I mean, it is the number one failing business in the world to start with. Um, there's just so many of them in competition, and cost of goods is always a challenge. I mean, for us ourselves, um, I mean, you know, complete clarity, there's really no telling if anybody's going to be able to survive after March 31st if something doesn't drastically happen. Um, you know, landlords, uh, business loans, you know, they're all, everybody's putting out the right posts about, you know, wanting to do what's right, but they're going to be the first ones knocking on your door if your rent check is late, if your loan payments are late, um, because they're faced with, you know, they have their creditors as well. Well, and that's why it was interesting the other day when the Premier made uh, the pledge uh, that, uh, you know, nobody's going to lose their job if they have to stay home uh, because they've been shut down for, for whatever reason. Uh, and and on the surface, Mike, that sounds fabulous. Uh, but on the other hand, if if the business goes belly up in the meantime, there's no job. That's all there is to it. That's exactly it. And I mean, you know, uh, with with our restaurants, we're fortunate to have a, a great staff that you know we we pushed on as far as we could to not out of the guise of making money, but in keeping them employed in these tough times. You know, to provide um, you know job security uh, that for for people that have to take time off is one thing, but to how are they going to, how are they going to survive? You know, um, how are they going to pay their bills? And not only that, when this thing comes back, 
um, and and hopefully it's, it's soon and we get back to work. Um, what's the business going to be like? So there's going to be some of those those people that are not going to make it back right away. It's going to be very similar to companies that do layoffs. Mm-hmm. And they'll begin calling back as the business needs them. Mike, what did you hear from your staff? I mean, before these announcements came along, the story was out there. We we knew what the virus was like. We knew it was very infectious and it spread and, uh, you know, physical contact, which is what, by nature of the job, what your staff do. Uh, were they mm-hmm. concerned about the impact it could have on them as, as long as they were serving and, and while you were still open? I mean, obviously, everybody has underlying concerns. You know, we told our, we were, we were straight up with our staff from the beginning. If you do not feel comfortable, if you do not feel like you want to, um, be here, then by all means, you're welcome to, to take the time off that you need, uh, for your own health and well-being without any repercussion or reprimand on our part. We were, we were again very focused on making sure that everybody had some income to be able to at least prepare. We saw this coming. There, you know, I, I had gotten phone calls days ago from people who knew people that said that this was going to happen. They actually said it was going to happen yesterday and, and, and quite frankly ended up happening, happening today, even from hearing from, uh, you know, somebody who knows somebody inside Hamilton Police who said they were all notified that it was supposed to happen yesterday. Mm. And uh, we kind of said, oh, it didn't happen. And then, of course, here we are at 8.30 this morning watching the news, and sure enough, it did. Um, but our staff were, you know, staff were concerned, but staff were also very confident in the steps and measures that we were taking um, as a business to ensure, um, obviously, that everything uh, is safe and, and you know, the, the, the practices put into place with limiting uh, volume, limiting guests, and, you know, obviously sanitization and proper hand washing and cleaning and all those things we're hearing about. But first and foremost, we gave them the options with no... Uh, with no repercussion to to not come in, yeah. Uh, and by the way, I mean, we, we talk about the things that we're being asked to do, hand washing and hygiene and, and things of this nature and cleanliness. I mean, by definition, you guys have to do that anyway because you're inspected. And, and you know, if you don't check those boxes, you guys don't open the doors. And, and, and so you, of, of all the places that probably are the ones that are maybe setting the standard for it, it, was, it would be the restaurants in this community uh, that have those green stickers on their front door. So that's not the issue here. The issue here, I guess, is is the spread of the virus. Uh, and the bigger issue for you guys, Mike, is uh, you, you as the premier said, this this uh, policy that they're putting in place right now is is effective until the end of this month, at which time I assume they're going to reassess this. Uh, but uh, you got to ask yourself if inside they decide to extend this, uh, what's this going to do to the industry and, and to individual businesses? I know I'm, I'm not going to ask you your particular situation because obviously I don't want to. Uh, that's private sure. information, but. Um, it's, it's, some people are going to say, look, I can't close the doors forever here. I mean, you know, as you say, you've got bills to pay. I think it's going to be crippling to the industry, period. I mean, you know, I've been in this business my entire life and worked for, you know, from big, you know, billion dollar companies to independence. And you just don't bounce back from this period, no matter what your financial situation is. I mean, um, you know, the ones that are going to stand to make a killing right now are going to be the, the, the delivery companies out there that already take, you know, 30% from a restaurant to provide their services, plus a myriad of other fees. They're actually probably salivating at this right now. But the independent restaurants and even some of these corporate restaurants, they're not going to survive. They're not going to survive two weeks, um, let alone if it's extended. The longer this goes on, and, and as somebody who's been in the industry as long as you have, uh, the other concern here is even when you open the doors, uh, there's no guarantee that clientele is going to come back right away. Exactly. You know, people are still going to be very much tied to the barometer of what's going on. Now, I will say we were shocked at the amount of people that were still coming um, or trying to come. And we were still seeing people from, you know, you know, choosing to go out. And I think that's why the premier made this decision and, and we do understand it and we do accept it. Um, it wasn't, and you made mention about, you know, a restaurants being held to high sanitation and, and safety standards and are the people. And, you know, we, we see people come into a restaurant and, and they go right to their table and sit down. They don't go right to the washroom and wash their hands. That's on any given day. Yeah. And so the real variable is the average, the average person out there who doesn't live or work in, in a high, um, standard of, of hygiene like we do in restaurants or like they do in hospitals or doctor's offices or grocery stores. It's, you know, they're walking in and 
and sitting down and going about their meals. We were picking up what we could with, you know, constantly sanitizing everything. Um, but that's the concern, and that's why I understand they made the move they did. Well, uh, if everybody else plays by the rules here and we start talking about social distancing, et cetera, and we can start to get, as they say, flatten that curve, uh, the sooner we can get back to whatever the normal is going to be these days, and, and that would be good news for you guys. Mike, uh, all the best. Uh, you know, we're thinking about guys like you and, we're st- and your staff, obviously, uh, and we understand why the government's doing this, but, boy, the, the fallout for this is, uh, is going to be problematic for some time to come. Uh, we'll stay in touch, though. Hopefully there'll be some good news not too far down the road. We definitely hope so. Thank you so much, Bill. Okay, take care. That's uh, Michael Chipolo, of course, who uh, runs Hamburger and Fish. Uh, four different restaurants in the Hamilton area. One of the great uh, restaurant entrepreneurs in this community that are going to be negatively impacted by this. Uh, and a lot of other businesses are, too. I'm going to ask Marvin Ryder about that, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University here in Hamilton. Marvin, thanks for jumping in here today. Appreciate the time. Glad to be with you, Bill. Uh, Mike is just one example of a number of entrepreneurs that have uh, organically grown, uh, in this case, the, the restaurant industry. Uh, I, I don't think uh, any of them are, are saying we don't get why you're doing this. I think we all understand the gravity of the situation. But, boy, the long-lasting economic impact here is going to be monumental. Well, let's say that, although I'm not completely sure. Now, we're getting some news out of China that um, because COVID-19 seems to have been running its course and it's winding down, I'm going to say that out loud, maybe I'm wrong, but it seems to be winding down, China has begun to relax some of the restrictions it had before, and it does appear that life gets back to normal fairly quickly. Um, One of the things about social isolation and social distancing is that that is not the way we're made as humans. We're made to be social animals and mix with others. Uh, And I think Mike's comment about how people were still going out to restaurants, even though he thought they shouldn't be, it's because we very quickly get this thing called cabin fever. The minute you tell me I can't go out, then that's the one thing I absolutely want to do is go out and mingle with other people. When this gets passed, what I can't tell Michael and other people is, is that three weeks? Is that six weeks? Is it 12 weeks? And so that's why I think people like Michael and other small business people need to stay in touch with their political representatives, whether they be municipal or provincial or federal. And the question, and and, um, our premier said this yesterday, tell me what you need. Tell me what I can do to help you survive. To date, most of the response has been to make money cheaper, so that if a business person needed to borrow some money to help their business stay afloat, maybe they don't pay any interest on it at all, just a zero-interest loan, use it for the next couple of months, and then when things get better, you can pay it off and you don't have to pay anything. If it's the city of Hamilton, you know, speaking now as an individual, not uh, not as a business, I pay property taxes, and I pay them four times a year at the end of February, end of April, uh, end of September, what have you, maybe this is a time for the city of Hamilton to think about delaying one of those payments. Maybe saying the April payment's now going to be due at the end of May to give people just a little more time so they can use their cash for other things to keep their business going. We've never been down this road in recent history. You'd have to actually go back, Bill, to the Second World War 80 years ago to, to that kind of living day-by-day mentality and being open and being closed and maybe not so much here in Canada, but certainly in a place like England where the rules were off for nearly five years, and yet people found a way to survive. You just have to tell them what the rules are. Well, and, and that's, the, I guess, the essence of this is how long is this going to last? Because I'm, I, I'm, t- I'm listening to Mike, who's a very optimistic guy anyway, uh, and entrepreneurial, uh, hoping that maybe at the end of March they're going to reassess the situation, and they will. But then we're hearing from medical experts, Marvin, that are saying this is going to get worse. We're going to see a spike in these numbers at some point. That seems inevitable. Uh, so are they actually going to say, okay, well, we'll relax this in spite of that? China's situation, I, I, I've seen the same numbers you have. Uh, there is a huge decrease in the number of new cases there. Uh, but that is because, of course, Chinese government, which has a different mindset than, than most de- democracies do, uh, they mandated uh, the, the the kinds of closures that were going on, and they mandated uh, the the sorts of uh, isolation that went on there, and uh, and we've seen that reflected. If it, now it's not mandated in our particular case, uh, but if we can adhere to that, uh, that's going to be good news for everybody, and and we can, hopefully we'll see that that redu- reduction in in the spike as well. Yes, well, all of that's true, Bill. Now, in the case of China. It seems that from start to now where we are, it's about six weeks, that if we can really get people to isolate for six weeks, we flatten the curve, maybe, maybe, we don't have the data yet, maybe even start to make the curve disappear altogether. 
Now, six weeks means if we start this in the middle of March, we've got to go to the end of April. Uh, and I think that's a good mindset for people. Don't think this is a week. Don't think this is 10 days. Get it in your head that you're going to be doing this for a month, four weeks to six weeks. And then if we can be really stringent for that period of time, maybe we can get to the other side then. Now, the government, this is what the government is trying to do at the moment, too. So far, all the announcements have been on bigger businesses as opposed to smaller and independent businesses. Again, about lowering interest rates and making money cheaper so that people can borrow to keep their cash flow over this period of time. Uh, I think it'll be later today, if not, it'll be tomorrow, that the federal government is going to announce things for individuals. Uh, it's all well and good for us to say, okay, isolate yourself, work from home. And yes, if I'm an office worker, maybe I can come up with a close proximity of what I was doing before or close facsimile of what I was doing before. But if I'm a, a shift worker, what do I do? If I'm a, someone who works in the hospitality sector, what do I do? And again, there's a very valid concern that if you don't have a paycheck, how do you pay your rent? How do you pay your other bills? And I think Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Morneau are going to be addressing that, if not later today, certainly tomorrow, with some program, probably through the employment insurance and probably through changing some rules about who qualifies and how much you qualify and for how long you qualify, just to keep everything going during this uh, uh, strange time that we're living in. But I, I do believe it is time limited. Now, yesterday, Mr. Trump in an interview said, I don't know how long this is going to go. And then, unfortunately, he decided to go. It could be June. It could be July. It could be August. Well, you know, going back to Mike's point, I think a business, if you told them they had to take these extraordinary actions for four weeks, six weeks, they could probably find a way to do it. But if I have to tell them it's going to be four months, wow. I mean, that, that, that now becomes almost insurmountable unless everyone just basically stops everything. Uh, in other words, if I own a business, I stop collecting rent. And if, if you owe taxes, you stop paying them. We all just stop everything. And we really can't do that in our economy. So I, I, we're still making up the rules as we go along. Well, I know, and we've seen some of the calls. I mean, some people are talking about an adjustment of hydro rates and uh, demanding the government do that. Uh, I should remind people, by the way, that the government does not control hydro rates. It's the Ontario Energy Board, which is supposedly arm's length away. So that's off the table. That's not going to happen. But there are some toys and some, some things that they can do here to try to, to make things a little bit easier for small business, isn't there? Well, again, I think it's going to be, has to be sort of on a business-by-business -business basis. So, for instance, uh, restaurants. Restaurants face a certain kind of challenge. Now, what if I'm a, a consultant operating in one of the buildings? What do I need? Even if I'm a local bank branch, what do I need? If I'm a retail store, what do I need? And I don't think it's going to be a one-size-fits-all solution. That's why I say the best thing people can do is stay in contact with your political representatives. Um, uh, for all of the complaints around Fred Eisenberger over the last year, I still believe he's a pretty caring man, and he and I think the city council too wants to do their part. They realize how extraordinary this is, but sometimes wanting to help and knowing what to do can be two quite different things. You're the expert for your business. You're the expert for your situation. Stay in contact and make some of those suggestions. Let's see what they can do to get through these extraordinary times. But again. I don't think these will become new permanent things either. So if people say, well, why don't you waive taxes forever? No, we need tax revenues to do other good things that governments do. But there may be something we can do for four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks to buy you the time so that we can get back to something closer to normalcy on the other side. Marvin Ryder at the DeGroote School of Business. As always, Marvin, thanks for this today. Glad to be with you, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.